Welcome back, everybody. It's your time to add up on the Ed Up Experience podcast, where we make education your business. Dr. Joe Salustio here with you again. I got all sorts of doctors around here. Dr. Joe, Dr. Well, I'll tell you who the other guys are in a minute. I have to properly introduce them, but I'll tell you guys, um, uh, if you don't know, uh, by the time this episode comes out, Elvin and I would have been at Elucian Live in Denver uh, at the Elucian Live conference, uh, for the Elucian conference, interviewing people um, and users that uh, are associated with Elucian and thought leaders and so on. Uh, we are so excited to go as I'm recording this, and I will tell you, we, I will say that we were really excited to be there. So can I talk about myself in a future sense? I know for sure that I will have been excited to be in Denver at the Elucian Live Conference. You guys can check out the episodes, of course, on our website, www.edipexperience.com. And did you know, guys, that we're writing a book with my amazing co-author, Kate Colbert, commencementthebook.com. This is the part of the episode where I like to shamelessly self-promote. I know it seems long to some of you. I will try to shorten it up. Commencementthebook.com, where, of course, you can get the insights of 100-plus college and university presidents uh, from this podcast distilled into an easy-to-read book instead of going back and listening to 300 and 400 episodes. Who would, do, who would want to do that? I don't know. Maybe my guest host today, you know him. Um, you know him. You've heard him before, ladies and gentlemen. Um, he is the founder of Educators.Network, a.k.a. EJS, a.k.a. The Doc, a.k.a. Dr. Eric James Stevens. Oh, oh that was wrong. No, 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 no. That was, that was better than what I was anticipating, Joe. No, thank you. That was, that was good. Thank oh. you for having me again. I'm excited to be here. I feel like I need to do it over. Do the whole thing <laughs> over again. Oh. All right, I won't. Eric, how are you? Tell me about Educators.Network, man. Congratulations on getting it launched. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm excited for the past uh, two years now. Um, it's evolved from hashtag higher, higher ed to hashtag translate academia. And now it's not a hashtag anymore. It's a real website. Um, and we're getting ready to do a whole bunch of really cool things. Um, I, the thing that I'm good at in this space is bringing people together and event planning. Um, and so that's what I'm going to start getting into again. I've got uh, a whole team of people now too, of volunteers, yeah. and it's pretty exciting. Um, I, I have to ask you a very important question, Eric. Okay. Did you happen to receive anything from me? Uh, oh. I don't know if you noticed that right there. I got a oh, mug. I, I do. Yeah, that mug. In, looks, my, in my window, Ed Up mug right there. What does it say on the back of that? On the, here, let, me, let me grab it. It says right here, uh, co-host, where we make education your business. Wow, co-host. Nice, Eric. You know how much we appreciate you and, and your help with this podcast. Um, I, I didn't tell our guest this, but we are going to grill him. We are going to give him every single hard question he's ever had. Let me bring him in. Um, I didn't, you know, I, I don't tell my guest that until I get him on air live that it's going to be super hard. But here, here he is, ladies <laughs> and gentlemen, Dr. Jeremiah Nelson. He is here. Uh, president, right, Jeremiah? Are you going to get president of NAGAP Association of Graduate Enrollment Management? What's happening? I am uh, having a great day. Thanks for having me. This is, this is awesome. Well, we haven't even gotten into it with you yet, so it's going to get more and more. I'm not afraid. Uh, Tell us about NAGAP uh, a little bit. So just level set for us. Assume somebody on this audience has not heard of the association. What do you do and how do you do it? Sure. NAGAP is an association of graduate enrollment management professionals. And 
we define that kind of broadly. We talk about graduate enrollment management as the full life cycle of a graduate student's experience from pre-admission, the consideration and exploration process, through applying and getting admitted, enrolling into a program, and then their experience in the program all the way through graduation and alumni status. So the kind of full uh, experience. And we are a membership of more than a thousand. I think we crossed 1100 maybe a couple weeks ago um, for this year's membership roles. And it's really a network of people and professional development and resources and support we're really the only professional organization focused exclusively on graduate enrollment management. Hmm. That's, that's, yeah, and um, there's so much to talk about when it comes to graduate enrollment management. I, in fact, um, maybe you guys know this or you don't, the last institution that I looked for, worked for, had uh, only graduate programs. So it was a graduate institution, so I have direct knowledge of this, and, uh, and specifically only had graduate programs. So there was nothing else to enroll students in different student, different needs, a lot of adult students, a um, lot of variation, Jeremiah, in what they want, how they want it, a lot of sensitivities. Uh, I, I call it the hypersensitive student consumer behavior uh, lately for, for higher ed. Talk about that a little bit with, you know, how, the, how those uh, concepts and thoughts are discussed amongst the, mem amongst the membership. Yeah, you, you're right on the money because um, many, campuses, graduate education has historically been treated as kind of the, the stepchild of sorts. And uh, especially as we look kind of out into the future at the enrollment dip on the horizon for high school uh, age students graduating, nice. uh, there's, a, there's a big need and, and a greater emphasis on a lot of campuses saying, hey, you know, these graduate students are kind of important here. And uh, we've, we're seeing a, ch a change on a lot of campuses in terms of how they're treated, the way that um, programs are resourced and supported. And um, the idea for our organization, we've been around um, coming up on 40 years now, is um, that there is different needs and the professionals that support them need each other as a network, but also need a different kind of professional development support than exists in kind of the general higher ed or enrollment management atmosphere. So you think it's more, that's, that's really a good point. Do you think that the professional development for enrollment managers at the graduate level is of a higher level uh, potentially? Because the reason, let me re-ask that. I work, the, the students that we enrolled in my last institution were mostly executive professionals. And to deal with that student on a consistent basis, you needed to up your game. You needed to be the same executive level professional versus being the enrollment advisor for a traditional undergraduate student where you kind of had the authority versus this executive level person who's working at a bank and you're their enrollment manager. You needed to meet them at that executive level in order to first of all, gain that respect and motivate them in a way that needed to happen. You know what I mean? Maybe, maybe I'm asking it in the wrong way. No, no, I think, um... There's certainly some of that. Um, the thing that's a little bit different, I think, um, when thinking about graduate education versus, you know, traditional aged, not that that really exists anymore, um, but the traditional aged undergraduate student is uh, 
because they come in all different uh, forms and functions. Uh, there's certainly some, I worked with business schools my whole career. Um, so there's been a lot of executive uh, interaction, um, both engaging with companies and the relationships that you need to build at, at that level, but also with the expectations of people that are coming in. You know, if you're, if you're delivering an executive style program that costs uh, a significant uh, investment of dollars and time and energy for somebody who's very busy and balancing their career and lots of other things. Um, I mean, it is a, it is a different type of conversation than your traditional, you know, mm -hmm. under undergraduate, but in the same way, there's also programs that are aligned more towards the 22 year old who's graduating undergrad and going into a PhD program in biology at you know, some school. So, um, you know, that probably requires a very different conversation than somebody who's 35 with a family and an executive level job. Yeah. So. Yeah. Interesting. EJS, come on in. Uh, yeah. I'm, um, you said way, does anybody else call you EJS or is it just me just making that up? Um, no, man. I mean, it's, it's all you, but, but it's okay. <laughs> it's it's going to stick now. I anybody feel like that we're... knows Eric can call me EJS for sure. I'm Dr. Okay EJS. That, that's better. Come on, Joe. Dr. Joe. No, no. Okay. So, uh, no, no, uh, Jeremiah, I, um, you said something that is really interesting to me that aligns with some of the observations and thoughts that I've made, but I, I think I have a different take on it a little bit. Um, but you, you said that graduate programs used to be kind of like the, the stepchild around the university, and now they're getting a lot more attention and a lot more support. And that's, that's a really good thing overall, right? Um, I look at that and for me, like I'm, I, I see this trend that, and, and you mentioned it about the, the dip that we're going to be seeing in undergraduate enrollment. Um, I'm somewhat of a pessimist, right. And that the, the oh. university, yeah, like the university response to a decrease in undergraduate enrollment is to focus on graduate enrollment in order to increase revenue right in order to increase tuition prevent, dollars prevent revenue decline in some yeah cases. prevent yeah and, and so and to me like and i think that that's uh you know that's that's a big complicated thing one of the implications i see of that is that when those people are graduating after this um like i think a lot of people are going to graduate school because they don't know what to do next um and waiting for the job market to get better in a couple of years but then it's just going to be even more saturated um, and so I'm just really interested in this idea of, I think what this is coming to for me is what do you see as the, the future for that, that later part of the graduate student life cycle, right? Once they graduate, they're like in those alumni status, like supporting them in those alt-act career transitions. Um, like, I mean, you have this conference coming up at the end of the month, this summit, like what are some of these buzzy trend things that you have going on that are talking about some of these bigger kind of implications like we were talking about before? Yeah, there's, there's a lot to unpack there. So let me take a stab at it. The, the first thing that sometimes comes up in this kind of conversation is a sense that, you know, there's way too many people that have master's degrees, that it's gotten a little bit out of control and are those graduate degrees really necessary? And to some degree, um, when you're in an educated circle, 
um, the perception is if everybody around you has graduate education, that it must be true that that's true everywhere. And it's just, it's just not the case. Um, it's still a very, very small percentage. And in fact, you know, it's, it's not even 60% of the US population has a bachelor's degree. So, I mean, there's, there's that component of it. So that's just one misnomer that I always kind of, um, even some of my prospective students have that conversation sometimes, you know, that, you know, is, is this worth the money? It feels like everybody has one kind of thing. Yeah, the other side of that is if question. everybody has one, do you want to be at the disadvantage of not having one if your perception is that everybody has one? So that's another thing. I think I, I have a very different perspective and I am, um, I, th I think it's fair to say um, an extreme lifelong learner. Um, I've been, I was in graduate school in one form or the other. One of the benefits of working for higher ed institutions is you get to learn a lot of stuff for less or no money, which is pretty nice. Um, but I think that is actually a trend that's going to be elevated in the future. Um, in the industry, we talk about it as a 60-year curriculum. So learning is not something that happens in a two-year or four-year format. It should be something that is ongoing. And so there's lots of people on the fringes talking uh, about subscription models for higher education or even the more progressive schools and frankly, better resourced ones thinking about alumni engagement as an ongoing education relationship that they can have with their students where, you don't graduate and go off, but you graduate and continue to be involved, engage, and you know have periodic learning opportunities that are baked into your alumni status that um, both are good for the school because you're able to lend your lived experience to the students that are in the program, but you also stay connected to the lifeline of learning and um, continue to you know engage with your your brain and what's new and next in the discipline. So Level I think up. that's that's kind of a fun future for, for somebody like me. It's the way I've already decided to structure my world, but um, I think more people are gonna, and frankly, I mean, there's so much more access to learning now than there ever has been before. I mean, if you wanna learn anything on the planet pretty much, you can hop onto YouTube and watch a video about it or go on to edX or you know, Coursera or one of those um, platforms and for a very small amount of money or no money, get a full, you know, well-developed, polished, well-delivered academic experience. So um, there's lots of different ways that people are accessing that kind of ongoing learning. Um, but it's also true, I think, to some degree that there's more people are seeing value in getting different degrees at different stages in their professional careers. So, you know, I live in the business school world and we have um, a master's degree in, in management that is a building block or, you know, essentially half of an MBA where if you got a degree in the social sciences or engineering or something, but you find yourself more interested in working in business or, if you've got a liberal arts degree and you haven't exactly quite figured out how you're gonna take all those skills you developed as a liberal arts student and apply them to the professional world, you can get a degree that will, you know, there's a, a boom of degrees in that space, like a one year 
post bachelor's degree um, kind of transition experience. And that's great for that point in your life and career, but you will not have learned everything you need to know. So, um, you know, some schools have built um, a plus one that you can come back three to five years later and get the other half of your MBA and earn the MBA as a result of it, because you're kind of more ready for that um, more elevated, um, more applied learning experience, um, which you're just, you're not able to engage with in the same way if you have not lived a professional work experience life yet. Um, but employers love uh, to hire people who have been, you know, trained for, for, for jobs. <laughs> you know, um, there's what I work at a liberal arts school now, and I, I, we have a great placement rate, but um, lots of employers have a hard time figuring out what a history major should do at their company, you know, and giving a, a bridge kind of experience can make it easier for them, but also empower the student and give them the confidence that they've got something to offer to the, to the professional world, so. How do you feel about creative writing? Uh, what's your degree in, Eric? Creative writing? How do you feel about uh, creative writing? Close, close. English, English and a doctor in rhetoric. Thing. Come on. That's non-creative writing. That's what that is. <laughs> it's a, it's a useful writing. <laughs> Just kidding. Go ahead. Um, no, I think that, um, so this is, I, 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 this is just fascinating conversation to me um, and just being able to position how we can continually engage our students and our alumni um, while competing with YouTube and Coursera and like, just like those, those other, those other components. Um, so if you, so you're in this unique position that you can see what's going on with graduate programs across the country. Um, like you just, you just like being, being the president's, um, the president of the organization, you get to see that. How would you encourage a graduate student like who's considering graduate school to one, should they go? Because I think that that's the number one question they should be asking, right? And two, how do, how do you define the success of a program? Like what should that student be looking at in a program? I mean, I, I wish I had done a return on investment analysis, right? I wish I had done uh, like that market research about job placements for the, who, once I get this degree, what jobs are available to me and what does that saturated market look like? Um, and so, so now we're in a position of like, now we're in this endemic moment. We're trying to figure things out. People don't know what to do. And, and they look at graduate school. When people ask me, I tell them, don't go. Like, I'm very, very forward about that, right? Like, I think if, if you have an advanced degree, you don't need another one. What's the, what's the argument to go? Like, and, and, to how to, and how to make that decision the right decision for each student? That's a big question. It, it is, but uh, I'll take a stab. So um, I think to, to gut check whether or not a, a structured learning experience is the right match uh, for what somebody's looking to achieve is is a good question to ask. That is that is the right approach. Not just, I mean, there is a parade of people who leave their bachelor's degree and go right into law school because it's the next thing that you do, even though they have no intention of ever being lawyers. Like that, to me, seems wild and crazy, um, and a very expensive endeavor. Um, I think 
when does, there's kind of two pieces of it. The first is, should I go? And I think, you know, return on investment is, is certainly a, a reasonable expectation. I, I mean, I believe in education for education's sake, but most people don't work in an environment where they have an unlimited budget for that kind of investment, right? And at some, at some point, it's, it's not gonna add value from a income perspective. That doesn't, I mean, if it's important to you, you can spend money to learn and there's, there's other benefits. And I think you alluded to this a little bit um, that come in all different shapes and sizes and flavors, um, depending on what you're looking to get out of the experience. For many elite schools, the network is the thing that people are going for, right? They appreciate the learning and value that, that they're gonna be able to develop those skills and, and get the credential, but it is the network and the relationships and the access that they're gonna get. Well, if that's something you're a, that will be valuable to you professionally, then it's probably worth the investment, even if it's um, you know your, your second master's degree or whatever. Um, the same is true. I think a lot of schools are waking up, um, you know, in the um, in the liberal arts uh, PhD world, recognizing that those, just like you are right now, those folks have a whole set of skills that have not been um, developed in a way that made it obvious to those folks that they had lots and lots of options, and that there are many, many ways that those skills can be applied in a you know, fruitful, professional, valuable way um, that is not in front of undergraduate students in a classroom. Like there's, there's so much value um, in the type of experience that you've been through that it, it, it can give you skills that will be useful in lots of different environments. But just like in my liberal arts undergraduate students experience, if you don't know how to translate that experience to something else, or if you haven't been intentional about building internships and professional portfolio kinds of experiences so that you can show an employer. I don't just know how to learn and I've got this degree, but I also can do all of these different things. And here's some examples of the things that I'm capable of. Um, then it's a much harder and much steeper hill to climb, right? But if you, and by you, I mean, you know, you the student, but also if the institution. We also mean Eric James Stevens. Oh, yeah, of course, me too. I'm on this. Right. Yeah, but if if institutions are now shifting their thinking that way and not just preparing their particularly doctoral degree students for only academic roles, then they're um, you know they're helping those students see a value that ex, ex, it gives permission for you to get other kinds of work and for that not to be treated like a failure, you know, because the market is so tight and there are so few opportunities and those ebb and flow over time. And it may just be bad luck that you're graduating into a challenging market. And that doesn't mean that you are not, you know, or couldn't be an excellent academic, but that doesn't mean that that's your only option, you know, so you should be prepared to be flexible and to do lots of different things. And that I think is a good evolution of what we've seen over maybe the last five to 10 years in some doctoral programs. Um, so um, I guess the other piece that you kind of brought up is the discernment process. 
um, I think ROI is, is part of it, but not everybody who is getting a degree is looking at it necessarily as an investment. Um, but I think it's important to think about what kind of outcomes you're looking to expect. Like, is it a job? And is it a job in a certain direction or area or um, type of company or specific company? I mean, all of those are fair and legitimate. I've had students come to me and say, I wanna get a job at X company. And if that's your goal, um, it's pretty easy to learn if a school that you're considering has a pipeline to that company. And it's pretty easy to talk to the company's recruiters and find out where do you recruit from? You know, so that might whittle down your pool of schools that you're considering. Um, it, if you're looking to learn certain things or looking for a certain kind of experience, I mean, you can build that into your kind of rubric for how you're deciding what place you want to go. But the, the, the thing that I don't know that is valued in the same way as it is for undergrad is the culture of the institution, the culture of the department that you're gonna be working in, um, particularly in the doctoral level, I don't think enough people ask questions about success rates, graduation rates, and you know, I think it's a fair expectation when somebody takes on that kind of endeavor that they're gonna finish, <laughs> right? That doesn't seem like it should be that, that big of an expectation, but you know, if you go to a program and they're like, yeah, we graduate about 50%. Like, well, that's, that's, that's kind of a high risk situation that you don't think an investment of four to seven years of your time should equate to, you know, not finishing and leaving Yikes. with nothing. Hey, everybody, head over to www.edipexperience.com our website where you're going to find all of the episodes that we've recorded categorized so that you can ensure that you're spending your time listening to the podcasts that are most important to you. You're going to see the reviews of our podcast, the shows in our network, our partners, and a section on starter episodes. If you're new to the EdUp experience, listen to those starter episodes and get a feel for how the podcast has evolved over time and our impact in the world. www.edupexperience.com. Let me, let me, I want to, I want to kind of, you got to save it, little. Eric. You got to save this one. Well, cause you got to save this question. Okay, okay. 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 No, no, you're right. You're right. Right. You got, you got to save it because it's time for another episode of higher ed word association with your contestants <laughs> today, Dr. Jeremiah Nelson and Dr. EJS. Uh, Jeremiah, this is where I give you a word or phrase associated with higher education. And you're going to give me the first thoughts, phrases, and feel free to elaborate. It does not have to be one word because those make for boring episodes uh, of, of what comes to your mind when I give you these phrases and words. Okay. We'll start with Eric first because I think you've been through this once, right, Eric? A couple of yep. times or no? I think I got this one. Okay. Ready? And then you'll get the gist, Jeremiah. Here we go. Your first word, Eric, marketing. Oh, uh, I think that every academic is a marketer. Um, like your, your research path, like everything you do, all you do is market yourself. Uh, so yeah, own, own how to do marketing. Jeremiah marketing. First thing that comes to mind for me is digital and data. I think one of the things we spend a ton of time on, uh, with NAGAP and at our conference, you'll hear a lot of information about um, how to quantify your marketing efforts and measure your outcomes. 
and to know that your investments are paying off. So for me, marketing has shifted from a strictly creative function to something that is much more data-driven. Well said. All right, Jeremiah, now that you're warmed up, you get to handle these first. Number two, admissions requirements. Uh, I think for me, the thing that comes to mind first is aligning mission admissions requirements with um, the program's experience. So if, if, the, if the program has a highly quantitative expectation, expecting either coursework, prerequisites, or a formalized admissions test that will give some measure of that, it makes sense. Um, if the program is writing intensive, expecting a writing component of the application so that you can show that you've got some baseline of skills, that makes good sense. Um, but I feel like there is a competitiveness factor that's baked into a lot of, of admissions requirements that's just um, extraneous. It's, it's, it's purely for show. And uh, I'm, I've always taken the mindset that I'm not, I'm not interested in that. I'm, I'm interested in making the process easy for students, but for the requirements to be meaningful. Eric, admissions requirements. Um, my, 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 my feeling is, is a flipped expectation, right? Like admissions requirements are like, here are the requirements that the, the school has of students. Um, and I think how cool it would be if it's just like with, with taking out a loan, right? You have to, you have to have like loan counseling, have like an admissions counselor say like, is this really what you want to do? Um, like, like, here's what this means. Like we were talking before about that 50% attrition rate. It's a national statistic. Maybe we have an onus to our students to discourage them from coming if we don't think they're going to make it. Should that be part of the admissions process? Oh, you're talking to two enrollment managers here, Eric. I don't know. We'll have to debate that one. Uh, but what? But well said. Okay, we'll go to number three, Jeremiah. Workplace learning. Um, I think the thing that comes to mind for me is um, partnerships with higher education as an opportunity. Um, I think many companies have built their own internal, you know company you kind of experiences, which I think are certainly valid and valuable, um, but there's also um, a, a value to the, to the employee that their credential and experience be validated externally. And that's an opportunity to pull in other perspectives, other industry experiences. And so um, I think partnership with higher education can create opportunities for the best of both worlds. Eric, workplace learning. Yeah, I um, echo that. I think like that, I think we're like same page right there of, I think that is the, the more we can align through partnerships and through fun collaborations between higher education institutions and uh, industry um, organizations and nonprofits that exist, um, I think it's, it's going to be the future of, of what's there um, rather than trying to create such a competitive field of, of like, like presenting a, a united front kind of thing. Uh, so yeah, I uh, echo what Jeremiah is saying. All right. Last one, Jeremiah, this is the big bonus question. Dual credit. 
I'm not sure what you mean by that. Do you mean dual credit, meaning undergraduate, graduate, double counting kind of credit? Whatever oh, comes to your just mind. Just out there. Okay. Um, I actually have no problem with dual credit. If you've demonstrated that you've learned something and it happens to apply somewhere else, then making somebody take it again just for the sake of doing it here versus doing it there. Um, I'm all about kind of, if you can demonstrate that you know what you know, then you shouldn't have to repeat yourself. Eric, dual credit. I think, yeah, they should be encouraged. Um, I think like when I, when I think of that concept, um, I think of what the future of like a, an English department is and what it looks like. And I think that English 101 is gonna fade away as a class and you're, gonna, you're like your, your biology 101 class that has a writing component will act as biology 101 and English 101 because of those cool collaborations that we've been talking about before um, that you can teach two principles in one class. And I think the student, just like Jeremiah said, if they can demonstrate that they have done those two things, um, then yeah, I should totally give it to them. I'm gonna have to go, this was a close one guys. I'm gonna have to go to the judges and ask the question uh, to see who won. Did Dr. Eric James Stevens win this round? Uh, I'm sorry, Eric. Uh, did Dr. Jeremiah Nelson win? Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Knew it's it. also impossible for a co-host to win. <laughs> All right, Eric, back to you and the question that I rudely interrupted you, uh, if you can remember what it is even. Oh, yeah, no, um, I think so. Like, I just, just like you, like I, when I talk to people about graduate school and graduate education, right, and I, and I make the, um, the claim, like, like, hey, we should be doing this, like, like, what career do you want after this? Like going away from like education for education's sake, right? Which is a little bit problematic when education is your business model, right? Um, what do you think is the actual like split of people who go to graduate school because they have a goal to get a better career in their life versus the group that's just going for education's sake? Because and like my, like, I feel it's, it's a larger percentage that's going to get a better job, but because we like that education for education's sake talking point, and it's so much easier to talk about it in the abstract that it just gets way more attention than the majority of what people are going to graduate school for. So I asked, I asked it and I answered it for my own, but I'm just, I'm just, I love that I get to talk to you. That's a horrible co-host move where you answer your own question, but we're going to. I know, I know. I we'll allow it. We'll allow That's, it. There's a reason I lost that round. Where's my, where's my Eric button? <laughs> Go ahead, Jeremiah. So, yeah, I think, um, I think you're right. I think most people come in with some um, expectation for application, that it's not necessarily learning for learning's sake, but I think that sometimes um, I think sometimes people pursue graduate education because they know it will elevate a set of general skills. So it may not be like, I want to get this particular job, but, you know, when I was working in the MBA world, the, there were people that pursue the MBA because they know that it will make them a better strategic manager. And not that they necessarily want this job versus that job, but they know that it's going to elevate their skills. And I think, you know, in all kinds of specialized master's programs, um, 
whether that's in psychology where you are eligible for your credential so that you can practice as a psychologist or whether it's in you know english or something else where you're where you're elevating your skills so that you're able to apply them at a higher level that the expectation would be that you're going to get a better job than you could have gotten with just a bachelor's degree in that discipline right um it could it could also be i suppose that that people are getting the graduate degree just because they are enjoying the learning process and they they see that they're with a graduate degree there will be more opportunity whatever more opportunity looks like in their field um, but maybe they don't know necessarily exactly what that is yet and grad school gives them some time to figure out what that more opportunity will translate to for them jeremiah so you know, i think what you're right you, what you just said just resonated with me greatly because i it's funny because when I am using myself as an example here, I got my master's, I don't know, 2012. At that time, I was two, two years before that. So around 2010, I'm sitting here and I'm managing 140 or 150 people. And I'm getting crushed. A lot of them were part-time folks. So I'm getting absolutely just crushed with, with um, HR things, HR issues. I mean, the, um, some, somebody, you guys will laugh. I had an employee come to me and complain that another employee smelled like um, like smoked beans, okay? Like literally, that I have an employee in my office saying baked beans. Is that a that, bad thing? Well, that's what I said, and I said that you know, is it bushes? No, I didn't say that. Bushes baked beans, but uh, apparently that was a thing. And so I'm like, how do we, how do how am I going to handle this? Right. And so multiply that by issue after issue, after issue, after issue. And I, when I got to go back, to, I'm going to go back to school, get my master's degree in human resources, because I need to know more about how to handle these things. Even though I'm not the HR manager at my institution, I need to be able to just understand more. And my boss came to me at that time and he said, I know you're going back to get your master's. It's not going to do anything for you here. Just so you know, you're not going to get an increase and you're not going to get a new job. And I said, I don't care. I'm just trying to make myself more prepared. Well, I went and I got it. And then two years later, three years later, I ended up getting a new job where a master's degree was required. So it served a dual purpose, right? So that resonated greatly with me with what you said. Sometimes the why changes over time, um, which brings me back to my original point with, and Eric, you're, you're talking about it it's so, so greatly. And we talk about ROI all the time and it is a thing. The question is, is it short-term ROI or is it long-term ROI when it comes down to degrees, right? If you're looking always for a short-term ROI, it's, it may not happen. And we, th we forget, I, my is my opinion, coming back to what you said, Jeremiah, about the company that might have my pipeline to this company that hires people. I want to work for XYZ company. We'll get you this degree. Maybe we'll even get you an interview and you go in there and you bomb the interview. You ain't getting the job. So there's so much personal responsibility still in this ROI conversation. And I feel like a lot of the narrative around it has been forgotten. Like no matter what we can prepare you to do, if you go in and say, I hate this company in my, in your first interview, you're not going to get hired. Right. I mean, there is just this lost personal responsibility piece. I have a question here coming before my final two, which is coming back to this point that you hear all the time. So you'll hear it from the English PhD students can't write graduate students can't write anymore. Writing is this lost art. What do you think about that? Jeremiah? That was a whole long lead up to a question that was unrelated to the lead up just for the record. So I, that's what I do as host here. <laughs> well, it was masterfully done. 
if nothing else. Well, thank you, sir. You're welcome. <laughs> so, can graduate students write? Is writing lost? So I think there is something to it um, in terms of graduates not being able to write in the way that the organization expects them to. So they may be able to write fine um, in an academic sense or in a um, more informal sense, uh, and they are communicating effectively in that way. Um, but many programs do not help students translate all of those skills into what's actually going to be expected. I mean, the expectations in the professional world drastically different. Brief, concise, bullets, simple. If I have, if you have to go past five bullets, you need to rethink what you're sending to an executive. You know, I mean, it's just like it's a totally different mindset, and you you can't be extraneous and just um, uh, give all of the details. And so the perception that somebody can't write because they are giving all of the things that are not necessary to the person who needs to make the decision, the time required to distill your thoughts down to their most simple, easy to digest form is not something that a lot of places teach. And um, it's to the students disservice, I think. I mean, there are certainly schools, I will not object. Um, there are certainly schools where Class sizes are gigantic. Students don't have to do a lot of writing practice in their academic coursework. They've probably had a couple of academic classes. Um, and so they, you know, they may be rusty um, because they haven't taken even a writing class in you know, four years. But um, I think most graduates are effective writers once you teach them what you want them, how you want them to write. So what says the English PhD to that response. Um, I, yeah, I think that that Jeremiah, I, I, what you said resonates in that um, we need understanding that writing is such a contextual piece, right? Um, and that it's kind of hard to to answer the question: Can student graduate students write? Because then we have to follow up: What context are we talking about? Um, are we talking about industry or are we talking about academic? Um, personally, I would say in both circumstances, not that great. Um, when I was doing some research for starting a data company that helped teach writing using micro-credentialing and artificial intelligence and all that kind of fun stuff, um, the people who, um, who got most excited about the, the product that I wanted, wanted to develop were graduate student uh, or teachers of graduate students. Who said like I wish I could help my students write better, but I need to focus on my subject matter expertise. Um, and it's just this weird thing, like like because it's not like students aren't writing, like they're writing in every class they have. And so it's just like I wonder, and I just is there a way that I can get better? Because I think that um, I mean teaching college graduates how to write is a billion dollar industry. I mean look at Grammarly. Mm -hmm. The job well, of a faculty I'll, member has changed a, a tad, right? To more support and writing support than it used to be. Yeah, I think I think it's a really good observation that um, particularly once you get into advanced disciplines, this so, some faculty take it on, right? They are like, I'm committed and I'm just gonna 
edit this paper at the same time that I grade it for content. And it is more time consuming and it'll certainly be to the student's benefit. Um, one program that I taught as an adjunct for um, doctoral program, but for working professionals, um, they actually embedded a writing coach into the courses. So there was, there was a kind of a dual support system. There was, there was me who was focused on the academic content and the thinking and the application of what we've been talking about. But there was somebody else who was an expert writer, editor, who was giving them feedback on how they should be um, kind of fine tuning their, their written word. Amazing. Um, yeah, no, I, it is amazing. I, I, that it, and that's that's that'd be a great example of like a dual credit scenario. Like you're going in, like you're being trained by the subject matter expert, and you're being trained by a writing subject matter expert. Like I think that's a great use case for what we were talking about before. Well, even from a student's I mean, from a doctoral student's perspective in particular, um, the pain and suffering that they will experience in the dissertation process if they don't have those skills ahead of starting that process is totally, totally worth it. You know, if you can make that relatively small investment in the first couple of years so that they're set up to just focus on their academic research and not have to worry about how they're communicating it, that, that's transformational for what, and, and it's a differentiator, right? If, if you're considering yeah. programs and comparing them, that might be something that depending on how self-aware you are, you might say, you know, this is something that will add a ton of value for me. So. Oh, I love that question. Yeah, like, what kind of one. like support do they offer? Like in addition to the coursework, like what embedded support do they offer graduate students? Oh, I just got chills with that one. That was good. Well, Jeremiah, you're going to have to finish this off because we're coming up on time. We've got two final questions that we ask every single one of our guests. Number one, what did we not talk about regarding NAGAP today? What do you want to say? Website, events, conferences, your work, anything you want to self-promote. I did it at the beginning. You could do it at the end. And number two, what do you see as the future of higher education? Great. Thank you. Um, so my shameless plug is for our annual summit, which will be in person for the first time in three years. It's a major deal. Oh, um, April, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, the 20th through the 23rd of this month in Chicago. Um, we also have a summer institute um, that happens in Las Vegas in July um, that will have two tracks, one for foundations and graduate enrollment management and one for advanced graduate enrollment management. Um, great kind of two-day Where's immersion. that conference? Where was that? Las conference? Vegas. Cheers. Okay, go ahead. I just had to get it in. <laughs> yeah. So uh, lots of good stuff on the horizon in terms of learning resources. Um, but the thing about NAGAP that is most transformational, the thing that I think is um, essential for both the employers listening to think about, uh, as well as the, the VPs and the academics, is that helping your team find a professional community is essential to their long-term success and happiness. Like relying on just your colleagues in your own work environment is a, is a challenging move, right? Because um, being in an environment where people understand what your perspective is, to know that you're in a safe place, that you can, you know, let off some steam and uh, that, that you have a, 
a shared common experience and that you, I mean, especially in terms of NAGAP, our membership is so generous in sharing what they know and their best practices. And um, it's not a competitive kind of environment, even though many of the schools, you know, they may quote unquote compete for students. We're all in it to make sure that everybody's able to do their best and that students are able to best understand kind of what we offer and what the experience is gonna be like. So I think uh, every, every facet of life, uh, if you are listening, make sure that the people that you care for uh, in your professional world have an outlet in that way. Professional network is vital, is vital. Um, The future of future of higher education, um, I think, is diversity, equity, and inclusion. I uh, we didn't talk a lot about it today, but I think schools have got to wake up and to recognize that students are not going to fit in a box anymore uh, at the undergraduate level, at the graduate level, and it is up to us to adjust to them and not the other way around. And if we can connect with our perspective and current students where they are and really engage them in a meaningful way and offer them the support and the resources and the care that they need in order to be their best selves and to really fully take advantage of what we have to offer, everybody wins. So I think that's the future of, of higher education is for us to wake up to the fact that our students have needs that are maybe different than what we traditionally offer. You heard it. Jeremiah, Dr. Jeremiah Nelson says, wake up everybody. One person that has not been sleeping here during this entire episode is my guest co-host. His name, ladies and gentlemen, yeah, yeah, yeah. Dr. Eric James Stevens, and he is founder of educators.network. Eric, thanks for coming on. No, thank you for having me, Joe. I really appreciate opportunities coming out and talking with just really, honestly, amazing folks like you, Jeremiah. Uh, thank you for uh, having some fun questions and banter. It was, it was a lot of fun. Thank you. And of course, our guest today, Dr. Jeremiah Nelson. He is president of NAGAP, Association Graduate Enrollment Management. Jeremiah, did you have a good EdUp experience today? It was so good. Have me back anytime. Oh, I see. Open invite. I like that. We'll be reaching out. Ladies and gentlemen, You've just add up.